session that way as you see on television they always have a short rerun of the previous week so what we talked about last week was what is science and we said that science has limits that you never answer anything with absolute certainty by using the scientific method no matter what it sounds like when a scientist speaks and as wonderful as the discoveries of science are we never find out what is absolutely true. The second thing, and there were two parts to the lesson, was that in science we can never answer the question why anything happens. We only answer the question how it happens. No one ever through the scientific method has been able to answer the question why any law of nature works the way it does. And in fact, we mentioned that there may not even be any laws of nature, that what we've been calling laws in the past are really probabilities. At least that's the way scientists look at it today. We don't talk any longer about laws of nature, but rather the probabilities. Well, that leaves a very large area of human life still to be taken care of. All the questions that you and I have about living why does this happen? Why does that? Not only why does a pencil fall to the ground, but why are we here in the first place? Now the scientists that I had the opportunity to talk to around the world about this question for the great part, in fact, I think for a greater percentage than the population generally said that the questions of why are questions of faith and religion and that science must have a partnership with religious faith if we are to answer some of the pressing problems of our time. Margaret and I had the opportunity to be at a conference at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology not long ago that was called for the express purpose of seeing how scientists and theologians, Christians specifically, could work together to solve some of our problems in this world. 500 scientists and theologians from around the world were gathered there, and their conclusion was that unless scientists ask for and actively participate with and cooperate with theologians and Christians around the world, we're going to be in big trouble. They said scientists no longer have answers for the problems that you read about, about nuclear proliferation, 
and about starvation and about overpopulation. They said, we've got all the science we need, but we don't have the solutions to these problems. We need your help. They were talking to the Christian theologians there, and they said, we need Christ-like answers. That's where scientists are today. They are pessimistic about the possibility of solving our problems purely by the method that we thought at first was going to solve everything. In other words, faith is necessary. Rationalism alone cannot solve our problems. Science can invent the knife, one scientist told me, but it cannot tell you how to use it. You can use it to cut bread or slit someone's throat. The knife is the scientific discovery. The way you use it is a why question. And for that, you need faith. Or as I read yesterday, faith is something that you believe rather than something you see. To twist a very common term around, believing is seeing. Whereas science would say seeing is believing. Believing is seeing is what I'd like to talk about today. The Bible puts it a different way. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, and if you have your Bible there, we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 11 because that is the great book of what faith is in the Bible. And it says, to have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for, to be certain of the things we cannot see to be certain of the things we cannot see. You see how directly opposite that is from the scientific method. In science we see things, but we're never, never certain. With faith you believe things and you are certain. They do not contradict each other. They complement each other. Faith goes where science cannot. Faith takes the scientist where rationalism cannot take him. It is not better than science. It is beyond science and human endeavor. Webster says, faith is a firm belief in something for which there is no proof. Not something that you will find the proof of one day, but for which there will never be any proof. Carl Sagan told me, and he is not exactly a believer, Carl Sagan of Cosmos told me that religion will have to retreat from tree to tree as science explains the things that we previously believed in. I'm telling you that he's not representative of most of the world's scientists in that belief. And it is a belief on his part, because you cannot prove what he just said. Faith, in other words, takes us beyond where our reason can ever take us. It's something that you hold as true even though you can never prove it. For instance, we believe that there is a God. In the ultimate scientific sense, you cannot prove conclusively. You can never prove anything conclusively, but you can never ultimately prove that there is a God in a scientific way. Neither can you prove that there is no God. It's a neutral question in science. Over and over in my book, The God of Science, I quote scientists who say, the question of the existence of God is beyond the scope of science. They should be honest, and when you ask them honestly, they will tell you that. It isn't a matter that a scientist comes up to you and says, well, you're a Christian, you believe in this unscientific thing that there is a God. Not true. Everyone either believes that there is a God or he believes that there is no God. Both ways, it's a belief. It's not a scientific conclusion. Many other things we believe but cannot prove. We believe in the importance of loving each other. That's a belief. That's not a scientific conclusion. We should thank God that these are beliefs, 
because if they were scientific conclusions, they would not be certain. If I believe that God exists because I can prove it in nature, I could never be sure of it. Because the conclusion would always be tentative. My belief in God is absolute. It does not rest on proof. Now, there are many, many kinds of belief to pick from in this world. And this morning I'd like to familiarize you with a few important beliefs that people have. And we're going to end up with the Christian faith in our discussion. Because it is a belief. I want to start with one with which I'm sure you're very familiar. But which you may be surprised to hear is a belief. I have yesterday's comic page here. I read Peanuts, I read a few others, I do the crossword puzzle, and then on one page I see Gene Dixon. And it says that I'm an Aries. And for today, you may want to keep yourself today to avoid a nosy relative. A shopping spree could prove more expensive than anticipated. I'm sorry, this was Thursday. I thought I had today, so I'm glad I'm over this one. <laughs> know your priorities and act accordingly. And so on. I don't know what you are. But I've, yes, I did. But I've got news for you. And this always shakes up my students, and I'd like somebody to help me distribute these, please. I don't want to spend a lot of time going through that sheet, but I want you to have it. I finally took the time to write this out. I've been talking to people about it all this time. Astrology is the belief, the religion, the faith that the stars and planets have an influence on our lives. There is absolutely no scientific proof for that. I do not know a single astronomer who believes in astrology, not one. In fact, I have a lot of books that say that there's nothing to it. But if people want to believe it, they can. That's their privilege. There's no proof. If they want to believe that, it's their faith. But one thing you should be aware of, and this may shake up your whole life, on the sheet I'm just passing out, you are not in the sign that you think you are. And instead of reading Aries for myself, April 12th, I should have read Pisces, because that's really my sign. And under Pisces it says, those around you today are openly enthusiastic about your ideas. That's true, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Well, why don't they get you into the right sign? Very simple. As I say, I don't want to spend a lot of time I spend a lot of time in my courses on this, but it's simply this, that when these signs were made up that Gene Dixon and the others are using, 2,000 years ago they were made up, the stars and the planets were in the constellation in the middle column on that sheet. But since that time, things have shifted. That shifting, which I mentioned on the bottom of the page, is called precession. The Earth wobbled. The Earth wobbles once every 25,900 years. So if you wait a little, you'll be in the right sign again. <laughs> but right now, you're just about one sign off. I was going to bring the globe along that shows what sign you're really in, celestial sphere, but it was a little too big to carry. And I've mentioned the source for this on the bottom. If you use other maps, it may be off by a day or two, but not more than that. It's just. A little variation of where people and astronomers draw the lines between the constellation. And notice, and I met a fellow last night when I showed him this, he was surprised to see that he's not any one of those 12. He's the 13th one that astrologers don't even know about. Ufiuchus. Are there any Ufiuchus here? From December 1st to December 17th? Because if you are, you're out of luck. There's nothing in the paper about you at all. <laughs> there are 13 constellations along the zodiac where the sun goes during the year, not 12. That has been agreed upon internationally by astronomers in the IAU, International Astronomical Union. They meet every three years and they've divided the entire sky into 88 parts. 
and these parts are the ones where the sun goes during the year. So I can prove scientifically that you're in a different sign from the one you think you are. But whether you should believe what it says in the paper, I can't prove to you. You either believe it or you don't. I think it contradicts Christian faith. You can't rely on the stars and on Jesus Christ at the same time. It's one or the other. I noticed, by the way, that the New York Times, I was looking in there for one, doesn't carry the horoscopes. And I like to think it's because on the front page it says they only print the news that's fit to print. <laughs> well, there is a second kind of belief that is a little more serious. Well, this is very serious to some people, but more far-reaching than astrology. And it's a faith called humanism. Now, I don't know whether you've ever heard that term, humanism, defined. What is a humanist? It sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, we could all be humanists. <laughs> yes, except people today who call themselves humanists have adopted a paper called the Humanist Manifesto. This is their doctrine. It's very long. And I'd like to read parts of it to you because on the back it says we're looking for one million signatures. Somebody said, why don't you leave it out sometime on the table and see how many people were really listening to you? Because if people sign it, that sure shows they weren't listening to what you said or else totally disagree with it. Listen to what a humanist believes. We believe that faith in the prayer-hearing God, who is assumed to love and care for persons, to hear and understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them, is an unproved and outmoded faith. Salvationism still appears to us as harmful, and it diverts people with false hopes of heaven hereafter. Reasonable minds look to other means for survival. We find insufficient evidence for the belief in the existence of a supernatural. It is either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of the survival and fulfillment of the human race. We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. Humans are responsible for what we are and will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Promises of salvation or fear of damnation are harmful. And it goes on. It gets worse and worse. There are some things in here, for instance, that say that the human being has the right to commit suicide. You shudder and you say, who would, who would sign such a thing? This is who would sign such a thing. Isaac Asimov, the man who has probably written more scientific books than anyone who ever lived. He's about up to number 250. Paul Blanchard. Paul Blanchard is a a writer on religious matters. These are theologians on here, not just scientists. B.F. Skinner. B.F. Skinner probably did more to influence educational psychology for our schools in the last 10 years than any other human being. Skinner at Harvard and his way of teaching. On and on. Carl Sagan started his first show, which will be repeated, by the way, this spring by saying, the cosmos is all there ever will be, and all there is, and all there ever was. That's humanism. Humanism is the belief that the human mind is the master of everything. That we must not resort to anything but the human mind. Humanists predominate in our educational system today. I see a lot of textbook authors on here. And as a matter of fact, in a recent address that I just saw a copy of to the American Publishers Association, the vice president of the publishers group of people who publish our books addressed these people and said, you must not give in to the pressures from people who want to get humanism out of our textbooks. Humanism, in my view, is our real enemy in this country 
as Christians. They are active, they're powerful, and they're out to destroy us. They get very emotional in discussions, in conferences. In fact, I read about one the other day where a humanist who was arguing with a Christian at a conference threw objects at him during the lecture. So irate did he become. I was present at a place in Hofstra University, as a matter of fact, in a discussion between a humanist and a Christian. And the humanist, in arguing from his chair in the audience, became so irrational in his speech that the people who were sitting around us, the teachers of science of Long Island, started to calm him down. Satan has a way of using everything in his arsenal to destroy the Christian faith. A humanist will become very unscientific when he tells you that you are wrong as a Christian to believe what you're believing. One other faith I want to talk about before we talk about the Christian faith, and that is an outgrowth, in a sense, or at least a connection with the faith in humanism. It says that humanism gives rise, and I don't see the exact line now, but I've well, here it is. The human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. Humanists espouse the theory of evolution wholeheartedly. Now, there are two kinds of evolutionary theory. There are many kinds of evolutionary theory. But there are people who believe that evolution can be synchronized with Christian faith. Those are called theistic evolutionists. There are those who believe that evolution has nothing to do with God. Those are called humanistic evolutionists. Humanistic evolutionists think that theistic evolutionists who believe in God are just avoiding the issue. Now, there is a great big controversy going on in scientific circles today and in educational circles whether to allow the teaching of creation in our public schools. One state after the other is being confronted on the state level, and in Albany right now, whether the regions of New York should require the science teachers of the state of New York to teach the story of creation as it is taught in the Bible. The decision is not yet final. In many states, the decision has been reached, California among them, that creation must be presented along with evolution and that both of them must be presented as theories. That is why President Reagan, when he was asked during his campaign what he thinks of evolution, he answered by saying, along with many scientists in this country, I have a lot of questions about evolution. And he said, I know that many scientists are beginning to question whether it is true at all. That's very true. It is very true that the theory or the faith that everything came here by a gradual process is being questioned all over the country. There was, in fact, a conference on evolution at Chicago's Field Museum of Natural History recently to discuss the new ideas in evolution. And in reporting on this conference, Newsweek magazine said, Evidence from fossils now points overwhelmingly away from Darwinism, which most Americans learned in high school. In other words, that new species evolved out of existing ones by the gradual accumulation of small changes. Increasingly, scientists now believe that species change very little for millions of years and then evolve quickly. That's kind of like making black into white gracefully, you see, and saying that things happen like that. In other words, fast evolution. So people who believe in the evolutionary theory should understand that it is a belief. Just like people who believe that God created the universe in six days the way the Bible has it, that is also a belief. They are things you believe as being absolute, and if a person believes in the evolutionary process, no amount of evidence is going to change his mind. 
I was at a debate at Princeton University not long ago where for three hours an evolutionist, Ashley Montague, a world-famous anthropologist, debated Duane Gish, a creation scientist and biochemist from San Diego. 2,000 students sat there in the gym on a Saturday night for three hours. And as the evening wore on, the students gradually applauded the creationists more and more because it became obvious that the evolutionist was resting his whole case on faith and not on scientific evidence. I have that three-hour tape recording if you'd like to listen to it sometime. Point after point, Gish brought out that the whole idea is something that is based on the idea that man is supreme and that we don't need God for anything. And then he wrote to all the great museums of the world to find out how many of them have any missing links among their fossils. And one after the other, London, Chicago, New York, wrote back and he showed it on the overhead projector, the letters that said, we have no missing links. We have none. We have not one fossil of a missing link. But if we look longer, we might find one. That takes faith. That takes faith to say you can find a half million fossils and not find one thing that you're looking for. If you do that in other walks of life, you'd give up. But no, it's based on the belief. You don't want to believe that it was any other way. And no amount of arguing, you know that when you argue with your husband or wife, that's the case. No amount of evidence does any good. If they want to believe a certain thing, they're going to believe it. Now on to the Christian faith. We could give many other examples of what people believe without proof. It's their privilege in America. First Amendment, you can believe anything you want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. The Christian believes that there is a God. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. If you don't believe that, you have trouble reading on. Because you'll say, wait a minute, I don't believe that. Well, if you read more, it might tell you some things that will make you think more and say, well, maybe there is one. But it assumes, the Bible assumes that you believe in God. Otherwise, why would you read it? Literature? Some do that. Secondly, the Christian believes that God has given us a message that has no mistakes, that is his divine revelation, and that that's called the Bible. It's not a book among books to the Christian. It is God's book. Now, it is amazing how many people, even who call themselves Christians, don't believe that. It's an item of faith. You don't argue about it. You don't prove it. You don't disprove it. You believe it. You may say, it works in my life. That's proof enough for me. Well, that's not a scientific thing you see in the laboratory. Life here, test tube there. You believe that the Bible is the word of God. Margaret and I were at a conference recently at a university where a thousand Christians had gathered to discuss the way in which the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And to my utter amazement, in a seminar in one room there, a professor was holding forth on a historical topic that was very helpful to me. He wrote a book on Luther and how Luther used healing services in his lifetime, how he believed in the working of the Holy Spirit, but that that aspect of Luther's life was kind of neglected as the doctrinal controversies began. It was very refreshing to hear that Luther was more, well, what I can't say, spirit-filled, I should say, that he was more spiritist than many Lutherans today give him credit for. But during the discussion period, a woman in that audience got up and said, Dr. Hoffman, why is it, and this had nothing to do with the topic, why is it, Dr. Hoffman, that at a Sunday school conference recently, a speaker told us that we should no longer teach our children the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. People were shocked to hear this. And Dr. Hoffman said, I have a colleague here who can explain that to you. And the colleague, in essence, after a long spiel, said, Madam, the reason for that is that modern scholarship shows that the Bible is not the word of God. We no longer, in fact, he said, worship a paper pope. 
Now, whatever the theological implications of that statement may be, and I could probably have a long argument with a theologian who would say, yes, he probably was right because some people use the Bible like an idol and so on. But what he was saying and what she took it to mean was that we shouldn't trust the Bible the way it's written. Well, if you can't do that, then where should she go? To a humanist? To the theological professor to explain what it really means? To someone else who says this part is from God and this part isn't? Then what do you have left? The Christian believes that the Bible is from God and that he doesn't have to worry that certain parts are wrong and other parts are right or that there may be other sections that haven't been discovered yet. In the news at 8 o'clock I heard they just found inscriptions on the wall of a monastery at Mount Sinai. Should we have to worry that there's something on there that should be added that will contradict what we learned? No, by faith, by faith. As a matter of fact, if a person does not believe that the Bible is the word of God, he's without anchor. He's back to humanism. He's going to use his own mind to say this is true and this is not true. If the Bible were not the revealed word of God, who needs it? If the Bible only contained what is common sense, who needs it? But St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, For God, in his wisdom, made it impossible for people to know him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, by means of the so-called foolish message which we preach, God decided to save those who believe. The Bible, thank God, does not all the way through makes sense because sense is human and the word of God is divine. Well, what does it tell us? It tells us that God had a plan and that in the wisdom of that plan, he did something about us in our misery that we couldn't do for ourselves. On television last year or two years ago, there was a series called The Long Search 13 weeks in which the man from the BBC went to various parts of the world for three years and investigated the religions of the world. Several books have been written about it. This is one of them. Chapter for each one of the religions, Hinduism, Zen Buddhism, Judaism, many others. And Ronald Eyre, a very good writer, wrote another book about his personal reactions. And as you go through these, and as you watch the series on television, one thing becomes abundantly clear. It did to me. And that is that Christianity is unique. It's unique in this respect, that it is the only faith that gets people out of their troubles by God doing something. All the other religions, man has to do it. It's something we have to do. People say, aren't all religions equal as long as you're religious? And as long as you're sincere? Well, if somebody wants to get to New York and is going east, it doesn't matter how sincere he is, he won't get to New York. Only Christianity has the message that we couldn't come up with ourselves, that God has to do something since we were bad. I heard somebody put it once in this way, that if a guy falls into a hole and can't get out by himself, you might imagine people from different religions coming by and saying one after the other, well, depending on whether he's a Buddhist or not, he might say, the hole isn't real, son. You're not really in there. Peace. Well, he's not getting out of the hole. Another one would come up and say, you have to think positively. If you really can do it, if you think you really can, Claw your way out. You'll still be down there. The Christian comes up, or the Christian religion now in symbolism, gets down in the hole and says, get on my shoulders and get out. 
Only Christianity teaches that. And we could not have thought it up ourselves. God had to tell it to us. How absolute is that? If it depended on proof, if it depended on how many Christians out of a hundred do this, you could never be certain it's the truth. But it's not something you believe because it works. It's something you believe because God said it. And if you don't believe it, then you are saying, I believe the opposite. No one is caught in between. On the final day, nobody is on the fence. Nobody will say to Jesus, I couldn't make up my mind. There wasn't enough proof. So leave me on the fence. That's called an agnostic. An agnostic is a heathen. Whoso is not for me, Jesus said, is against me. Whoso is undecided is against me. Because when I say it, I want you to believe it. And it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, I am certain. Now Paul says not, and he was a philosopher by the way, Paul was trained in Greek philosophy which was never certain about anything. They were so uncertain about things that when they had their gods lined up in Athens, they had one statue that said the unknown God. Very scientific. The unknown God. And Paul, through God's gift, said to these people, I'll tell you about the unknown God. Throw all the others out. Because I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love. Neither death nor life neither angels nor other heavenly rulers or powers, neither the present nor the future, neither the world above, and so on. Certain. How did Paul get this? Paul got it like we all get it, as a gift from God. No one argues himself into faith. Neither can you argue anyone else into faith. Because if you did, you would always have to be afraid that someone else would come along with a better argument and argue him back out again. We don't argue into faith. We don't become discouraged because someone we witness to does not become a Christian. We didn't become Christians that way either. We became believers through a gift from God. Not by ourselves, the Bible says, lest any man should boast. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Why do we preach then? Why don't we just say to the Lord, anybody you want to give faith to, go ahead and give it. I'll sit here and watch the Super Bowl or something. No, because it also tells us that we must do the telling. We're not responsible for the outcome but we are responsible for doing it. Paul says, I do proclaim a message of wisdom to those who are spiritually mature, but it is not the wisdom that belongs to this world or to the powers that rule this world, powers that are losing their power. The wisdom I proclaim is God's secret wisdom. People cannot know it unless we tell it to them. As a matter of fact, we have to tell it. A person who is given the gift of faith has to show it. You have to do something about it. I remember a fellow who sent his son to college once and said, now son, when you get there, there will be all kinds of evil influences in your life. People will be trying to rob you of your faith. Be very careful. And he wrote home after a month in a letter, and after he asked for the money, as usual, he said, Father, don't worry about this thing you warned me about. Nobody here knows that I'm a Christian. It's as impossible for a Christian to be anonymous as for that bulb to quit shining when you put electricity into it, unless the filament blows out, which I hope it doesn't happen to the Christian. So I've brought a little demonstration of that here. 
This is what I call my spirit of God machine. You see, God who had the power to create the world and he had the power to send Jesus Christ to redeem the world also has the power to give us power. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. A student made this for me many years ago. I also call it the Lemke machine because that was his name. He's an engineer somewhere now. And I use it on the first day of physics class to show that energy has many forms. Energy comes in the form of light, sound, heat, very expensive these days, mechanical in the car, many forms. But they're all really forms of the same thing. They can all be changed one into the other. And when the Spirit of God comes into the Christian, the way in which that comes out varies as various as people are. So let's think of the Spirit of God as the power of electricity coming in. I said last week that we're all really just lumpy energy anyway. Matter is just another form of energy. So energy may be really all there is. Here I have a ring of aluminum. It's not iron, that's why I dropped it to let you hear it. Iron doesn't sound that way. And also for those of you who are very scientifically inclined, you might say, oh, I know how this works. So we put the ring in there and we turn the energy on. Now why did the ring leave? Could you see that back there? I can hold it up a little higher. Why did the ring leave? Well that's another question of course. I want to just show you that it left. That ring couldn't do anything else. Ah, maybe it could. Maybe somebody could hold it. So I'm going to get a volunteer here now to hold the ring. No, I didn't work with you ahead of time, did I? Nobody knows what we're going to do. Let's step back here, please. Now I want you to notice that I can hold this ring. There's nothing really very difficult about it. I just gave him a little tip there. Okay, now hold it. Notice he can hold it. Now he let it go. Will you tell the folks why you let it go? Why did you let it go? It got hot. It got hot. <laughs> About 30 more seconds, I would judge, it would have melted. What does that tell us about a person who can't go? You'll have to let it go sooner or later. That was microwave in a way. This was a kind of a microwave oven. It won't stay hot all the way around, but it's still nice and warm, isn't it? Okay. So some Christians get hot. Some move. Here's a coil of wire with a little light bulb on the end. You put the coil over the piece of metal, and it lights up. Nothing up the sleeve. In fact, if we had enough water, well, I don't need this anymore anyway. Very dim, very dim. Some people are bright when there are obstacles, but it lights up through glass, through water, but best of all, when there are no obstacles. How does the electricity do this? How does it get from one place to the other? There were no connections, no wires. What well, may surprise some of you know, it's exactly how it gets to this room. Out in the pole, there's a black box, and the electricity jumps from one wire to the other, no connection. But be that as it may, the energy got from one to the other in almost a miraculous fashion. Energy has many ways of showing itself. The Christian, depending on the gifts that God gave him individually, will manifest it. And others will be able to see this person is empowered by something that is different from what powers you and me. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment and give a chance for people to ask some questions and comments. We have a few minutes left to go. So who wants to start out? Yes, in the back.
Very good. Seen that on a bumper sticker too. Any other questions or comments? You want to be sure to leave some time. I mean, I have all the material. I mean, the teachers never talk without anything extra to do, but I don't want to do all the talking. Yes, sir. Excuse me? Why do some people get the gift of faith and others do not? That, of course, is a question only God can answer, but I have some ideas. And one thing I like to say to a person who wonders about that is that perhaps God is waiting for me to pray harder for that person. Because the Bible does say he gives and does when we ask. He had not because he asked them. And if the other person doesn't have the faith, maybe we're not asking hard enough. And how awful that would be if another person did not have faith because of something I'm doing wrong. We're always pointing at the other person and saying, what's wrong with you? You don't have faith. Well, maybe it's the whole church. Maybe he wants a whole congregation to pray for those who don't have faith. And we're letting him down. Why does one person get healed from a physical illness and the other one does not? God heals them all. The head of Johns Hopkins Medical School told me, every healing is a miracle. A doctor can only cut, he said. The Lord alone can heal it. But why does he heal some and not others? Maybe, just maybe, it's because the Christians were not active enough. Remember what he said to Abraham when Abraham said, if there are 50 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy it. Can you imagine, folks? They tell me now that there were half a million people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Fraser University archaeologists have dug up what they think is Sodom and Gomorrah, and they found thousands of skeletons in a common grave, scorched and the whole thing. They're quite sure it's Sodom and Gomorrah. 50 people could have saved a half a million. Forty could have. How far did he go now? <laughs> Ten. This group in here could save all New York City. <laughs> we should try. Abraham shouldn't have given up either. He should have gone down. Nine, eight, seven, lift off. That's the only answer I have. God did not tell us any other answer. Yes, ma'am. I don't think the study that. That's true. We must not look at prayer as a good work. But prayer is something God asks us to do. Yes, ma'am. With the brain. Right. Right. The mind can be used in two ways: to reason and to believe. The things that are available to our reason, God wants us to reason up. He gave us the reasoning power. Nothing we discover is because Satan wanted it and God didn't. If God doesn't want us to discover something, we won't. We don't have to worry that nuclear power is a satanic discovery. God wanted us to discover it or we wouldn't have discovered it. It's a blessing from God. Whatever we can reason out, we reason out. What we cannot reason out, we accept on faith. The mind does both. My, uh, Excuse me. That we should reason out. 
Well, the term reason appears in God's word a number of times. In one place, Paul says, come, let us reason together. Well, that can be applied very widely, I think. I think Paul was saying that when something is open to reason, he was telling his disciples there and his followers, let's reason about it. Of course, the gray area comes where one person says, this is reasonable, and the other one says, no, this is a matter of faith. And there, whether God votes by majority vote, I'm not sure. We, the Lutheran churches have voters meetings to decide things that are not open to reason and Why does God allow evil? Yes. Why did he even make people who could fall into sin? That's the first thing I want to ask him. <laughs> yes. Some of the users. Some of the users. Yes. They are destroying God's creation. Yes. That's true. That's true. That's correct. That's correct. Satan has the unusual power to take any discovery we make and turn it to evil. We can destroy ourselves with our knives and forks, too. So nuclear power, it seems God wanted it, discovered it at a certain time in the history of the world. Why not in the Garden of Eden? Now, it's unusual in science how often the same thing comes from many parts of the world at the same time independently. Seems that the time is here. But how to apply it? That takes more than the discovery itself. That's correct. Absolutely. They Science is too important, one scientist told me, to leave to the scientists. Right. It's too important. Well, our time has expired. It has been a wonderful morning, and I want to tell you that next time, in one month, we'll spend the entire period talking about miracles. What is it? When do they happen? Do scientists accept them? What does the Christian say about them? And how do you bring one off when you need it? So bring a miracle next month.